Theology professor Dr. Jonathan Lett speaks to the Laterno University Honors College on the subject of human limits, dependence, vulnerability, and suffering as part of our conversation series. Take a listen. Thank you. It's truly a privilege and an honor to be able to spend some time tonight talking about issues like this. And I also want to take this opportunity to announce into existence uh, that we have a club that is going to focus on conversations between the fields of theology, engineering, science, and technology. Thinking about how these uh, different fields have perspectives to offer us on understanding the impact of technology for something we all care about, a good life, human flourishing. So there should be some um, posters for you to take on your way out. If, uh, if you want to put that up somewhere, that'd be awesome. Um, really, you can put it anywhere but the trash. That'd be awesome. <laughs> and um, there should be some emails about that. So <clears throat> as Dr. Johnson said, this is sort of fruit from my research project, but it feels much more like just getting my hands dirty, digging. So I think you're going to see some clumps of dirt and maybe there's a few shrubs, some fruit in there as well. And what I want us to think about today is human limits, dependence, vulnerability, and suffering. So I have a very simple argument that I'll give you right up front and then I'm going to make. We don't like limits. We don't like being dependent. We don't like being vulnerable because we have a bad idea about what freedom is. This idea, in part, comes from technology and is reinforced quietly, secretly, by technology's success, its power. Finally, real freedom, freedom as a creature, is obedience and fellowship with God as a vulnerable, dependent creature. So that's where we're going to go. So let me just start by introducing the issue of human dependence and its relationship to vulnerability. It's not a newsflash that we're all dependent, that we are vulnerable, that we rely on things outside of ourselves in profound and very basic ways. We need plant life, organic matter, stuff outside of us for our bodies to work the care of humans from infants, from the beginning of life to the end of life. They are dependent on other human beings. I'm particularly aware of this fact right now with as a father of a two-month-old and a two-year-old. And it's actually impossible for me to figure out which one is more needy, <laughs> which one is more dependent. But I've been startled and surprised by the ways that the two-year-old, the more independence that she, she gets, the more complex her dependence becomes. She's like a hydra. Like all these different needs, cutting off each one, two more sprout back. <laughs> and I actually think that that's true. We sort of think dependence, we move out of it, but throughout our lives we have varying degrees of dependence. And dependence itself might, if we think about it broadly, get deeper 
the more independent we feel. So even as fully functioning, independent adults that you all are, you still need friendship. You need others for knowledge, for skills to get through life. You need someone for spiritual formation. You need another person for a tandem bike or a real live person to help you get over some difficulties with your Apple ID because you have two accounts since you've been living abroad and they can't be reconciled. I'm still waiting for that person. <laughs> We're dependent on others for work, for work to do. And we're dependent on others for protection, for food, for health care, like I said, for knowledge. And what makes us dependent, besides being creatures, is that we are bodily creatures. Now, we're not identical with our bodies. Not identical, but there is no me apart from my body. Now, there is a duality here that oftentimes becomes a dualism. But sickness helps us feel this duality, suffering. We say, all of a sudden, I'm reminded that this body feels other to me. Something's wrong with it. I can't control it. It seems to be raging against me. And at the same time, this body is me. I need it. Someone heal me. Lay hands on me, Jesus. We see that there is this dual duality. I am a body and I have a body. And all of these different dependencies that we have in our bodily existence make us vulnerable. Without food, we wither and die. With bad food, we get unhealthy and die. <laughs> or at least we feel like it. Without a parent, biological or, or otherwise, we fail and flounder. We don't reach maturity. And in the most basic sense, without two biological parents, none of us would be here. Without someone who can pass on skills or knowledge on which we depend, then also we won't succeed in life. This is one of the ways that technology is so useful to us. We need knowledge. We need to learn skills. I look at YouTube videos to do basic things I should have learned long ago all the time. How convenient is that? So humans are dependent, and because they're dependent, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to suffering, and it is suffering that we acutely feel alienates us from ourselves, from our bodies, from our neighbors, from family, from friends, from God. Now, it's this threat of suffering, this threat of suffering that technology promises to, to protect and deliver us from. And it's this threat of suffering that lies at the origin of the turn to technology. Our, we have a technological culture, and it comes from trying to manage this threat. And I've just realized that I haven't been faithful with my slides. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in order to understand what I mean, that technology is at 
that this threat to suffering is at the origins of our technological culture, we have to do a little bit of some history. We have to learn something about the Baconian Project. The Baconian Project is termed by Gerald McKinney, who's a bioethicist and theologian at Notre Dame. And the Baconian Project is not this. This is, by the way, if you Google tons of bacon, this is what you get. <laughs> tons of bacon. Okay, it's this bacon, Francis Bacon, 16th century natural philosopher, what we might call today a scientist, although no real scientist existed until the 19th century. He is a Christian, a devout Christian, a scientist, a philosopher, and he's the first thinker to explicitly champion the idea that the relief of suffering is the goal for humankind and there's a moral imperative. It's something we have to seek out. So Bacon believes that God ordered the world and put it here at our disposal to preserve and enhance our lives. Now we can see that from Genesis. That looks uncontroversial of a claim. But what Bacon does is he starts to say, well, listen, if we're really going to accomplish this, we need to, to realize that nature is an instrument and raw material for us. And it is something that we are commanded by God to do. So notice this is a deeply theological, a deeply moral commitment. And in this spirit, Bacon praised the mechanical arts and disparaged the speculative sciences, such as philosophy, theology, history, and poetry. He disparaged them for doing nothing, quote, to relieve and be benefit the condition of humanity. So traditionally, it was philosophy, theology, history, poetry. It, were, it was these disciplines that everyone studied, that everyone esteemed, but he switched it. And now the mechanical arts and the trade crafts are important, and he does this by tying it, wedding it to the scientific method, the Baconian method. Have it, any of y'all learned about that? Baconian method? Method of induction and the method by which you can map causality. So Bacon tells us that knowledge is power. Why is knowledge power? Because once you figure out, you can break down how all the parts fit in the world, then you can control them and you can manage them. You can do stuff with it. Knowledge is power because when you understand something, you can manipulate it. You can redirect it towards your aims. Knowledge is power and any other thinking that doesn't give us this power is useless. It's not worth our time because it doesn't fulfill the imperative that God gave us to care for your neighbor by figuring out a way to make their lives better. 
And this method is so successful, you can look at this building as a test case or as its success. We take part a life, or apart life, we dissect it, we separate it into discrete parts. Labs all over the world do this. Labs on this campus do it. The hope is that if we can have knowledge that is useful, we will expand our power to protect ourselves against suffering and expand our power to choose and determine where our life is headed. Now, a key part of this story is that Bacon had some checks against this going off the rails. They were his Christianity. But as that soon eroded into the background from those who followed him, so with it went the checks of, say, the claim that human beings are from dust and will return to dust, that they are bound to die. So to sum up what the Baconian project is, it's at the heart of our modern society, and it's this unquestioned, who can question this claim or this, this command to do useful stuff, gain power and mastery over the world so that we can protect ourselves, so that we can flourish. And now this technological quest goes right along with the other quests for freedom, freedom from religion, freedom from conventional social norms, freedom from letting nature set the terms for us. Now, notice that this isn't just humans trying to have control over the world because humans think they're awesome and they have this great power. It's compassionate. It's for love. It is, from the start, connected to the aim of liberating humanity from disease, from hunger, from toil, and enriching life. Enriching it with learning and housing with health, with all of these good things. And now if this seems too far removed from where we are today, uh, let's get this video going. Just as you sat down, this is an IBM commercial. And it's a commercial which I think captures, if, I mean, if Bacon were on the marketing panel, he would have approved this, okay?
How can you not clap? It's on three screens. The graphics are awesome. Even rhinos. Yes, even rhinos. Right? What? This is a utopian story. Look, this is a better world. There's more nanosensors than people. This is a better world. Technology will make the world smarter. It will make us work smarter, not harder. And the more and more we do this, the less and less suffering that there will be, and the more and more flourishing that there will be. Who can be against this? It's for good. Less and less dependence on the natural and more and more on the artificial, even as it becomes next to impossible to distinguish where one begins and the other ends. Now, this is actually the second best example of an IBM commercial. I couldn't find the first one because it's too old now. It's probably five years old, but the first one was how using all of this smart technology is going to increase response times to a fire, to a crime, help predict tsunamis and natural disasters. This is technology that's going to help us. And it's ubiquitous. And this is what I want us to get at, to realize that this is a culture. This is a pattern. We're not just dealing with here's a piece of technology and here's a piece of technology, but we're dealing with an entire culture, a matrix even. Albert Borgman puts it like this, the peril of technologies lies not in this or that of its manifestations, but in the pervasiveness and consistency of its pattern. There are always occasions where a Big Mac, an exercycle, a television program, yeah, this is from 1984. <laughs> it really is. Uh, Big Mac, an exercycle, or a television program are unobjectionably and truly helpful answers to human needs. This makes a case-by-case -case appraisal of technology so inconclusive. It is when we attempt to take the measure of technological life in its normal totality that we are distressed by its shallowness. What he's saying is we need to try to get below the individual's individual developments and applications of technologies and see the kind of pattern, the kind of way that it creates the very conditions that we're enmeshed in technology which processes our food, our movies as they stream on Netflix, our communication as it passes from one phone to another, headphones as we engage in music and art. So it's that this project has been so successful. I certainly don't want to have a toothache before modern dentistry. I don't want to go back and have surgery even 10 years ago. I want it next year if I have to have it, right? It's that technology has been so, so successful and that it's ubiquitous that it's hard for us to see. And so what we need to realize is that this project gives us not just technology, but a new understanding of what it means to be human. Michael Hanby recently argued that technology enables us to imagine a new biology, a new biology itself. Without technology, for example, we wouldn't be able to imagine 
that a biological man could become a woman, or vice versa. Thanks to technologies of surrogacy and artificial reproduction, it is possible for us to say, see same-sex marriage look exactly like marriage between a male and female because there's kids in tow. Hanby says, genetic screening, gender reassignment surgery, gender theory, contraception, abortion, abortion artificial reproduction, same-sex marriage, surrogacy, germline manipulation, animal-human hybrids. Some of those are issues, some of those are technologies. Issues, right? These are all reinforcing one another. It's part of the pattern. It's part of the culture. So Hanby says that really technology is at the center of how we understand ourselves, nature, truth itself. And because technology really does harness the power to alter human life, it really does alter the power, or it does really have the power to alter what humanity is. Some have claim that humanity itself is no longer a fixed category. We cannot ontologically separate humanity from its technological medium. Human nature ceases to be a fixed category and reemerges as a constantly changing set of possibilities and configurations. You can't think about what a human being is today apart from the technology that has been determining who we are. And there's, of course, movements, some of them less laughable than others, but all of them serious in looking at what it would look like to enhance humanity into something new, a new kind of human. For, today, for what we are right now is simply a transitional form on its way to the next level. So as we look at these technologies, notice what technology has enabled us to do, to expand our power of choice and determination. And this, again, under a good thing. A couple unable to have children now has the power. The ability to screen out genetic diseases. The ability coming soon from CRISPR to play with the genome. All of this is giving us a sense where we have this freedom, where we can overcome the natural limits, the ways that we are contingent and dependent and truly be free. We are free from the way things are given to us. Now, it shouldn't be any surprise that freedom is at the heart of the modern world. We enshrine this in our Constitution, in the, Dec or, sorry, in the Declaration of Independence. Right? Foundational to democracy is the right that we have to pursue, what was it? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And technology seems to help us do that. And then we debate about what this means when we disagree about big picture questions. So what does 
this really mean? It means that we have the right to pursue whatever project we want so long as it doesn't interfere with someone else's. You can do you so long as I can do me. What about abortion? Oh, well, now we've got to think about something that we just can't go our own way on. We've got, and this is where we see the breakdown of our politics. It forces us to do something which we can't do with our definition of freedom, which is primarily freedom from. Freedom from constraint. So Joel Schumann puts it like, whoops, I think I hit it twice. Oh, Joel doesn't get a, doesn't get a look. That's okay. Thus, at the heart of the modern project is the unassailable belief that the proper goal of human life, and therefore the proper application of human knowledge, is the maximization of human freedom through an ever-increasing attainment of control over the effects of various kinds of freedom-robbing contingency or freedom-robbing dependencies. So technology helps us think about what a human is as the power to choose what that human will be and do. And that's why any critique of technology that doesn't touch on what it means to be human hasn't gotten its hands around the root of the problem. Conversations about technology must go deeper than conversations about individual applications like cell phones. Are they good or bad? It's got to go deeper. It's got to go deeper than is it moral that we do genetic screening. It's got to go deeper still. It's got to go down to the level of what it means to be human. And that means we need to turn to that useless discipline, theology, <laughs> to recover a doctrine of creation, to recover what true creaturely human freedom is. And this is the last and final stage of my argument for tonight. So whereas the dominant notion of freedom in the West is freedom from, it's all negative. You're only free from something. You're never free for something. The Christian teaching speaks primarily of freedom in the positive sense of being free for fellowship with God through obedience, for obedience and communion. And we learn right up from the start of the Bible and the book of Genesis that dependence is the essence of creation. It's part of the very definition of what it means to be a creature. That God creates out of nothing means that everything that God has made depends on God for its existence. That there is nothing that God has made that exists independently of God. Furthermore, the first verses of Genesis insist that creation's order is dependent on God and that these limits that God starts to set down and carve out of chaos are good. They are the conditions for the life that will happen. Notice God separates the seas, the water from the land, so that there can be space 
for creatures in the middle of what was chaos. These limits are the conditions for life. And we learn at the end of the seventh day the purpose for this life, rest with God. So Genesis, Genesis 1 depicts through those seven days in its beautiful, useless, poetic form. It depicts a creation masterfully designed as though it were a temple where God was going to dwell with humanity and humanity with God. God's oriented, prepared, and equipped creation in this way to promise and proclaim and prophesy this purpose, that human beings are ordered for life with God. The whole structure of creation also gives us a sense of the interdependence, that it's interwoven. It's part of the temple. And of course, we see that human beings are dependent on creation and other humans. And when God calls this good, God isn't just saying, yeah, I think it's good, or now that I've said it's good, it's good. What God is saying is this is good because it fits with my purpose. These structures of dependence and vulnerability are the very thing that are good for human beings to enjoy fellowship with me and enjoy this world. And of course, human beings, we're told it's not good at one point too. It's not good for the man to be alone. And so he creates humanity in fellowship. So again, we get this sense that to be human is to be interdependent, to be dependent on God and dependent on creation. And when God says it's good, it's not just because God is really impressed with his own work or God is saying, and now it's good. It's because it's ordered for this good end. It's good because these limits are the, are the means the occasions, the opportunities, rather than the obstacles for flourishing through faith, through fellowship. And then we get to the fall, don't we? We get to the fall in Genesis 3, and we have a conversation between the serpent and Eve, and then Adam. The fall, being a creature, no more, because they want to be like God. Irony of ironies, God created them in his image, and yet here they see something that promises to make them like God. Is it possible that they've rejected what it means to be a creature? What it means to be dependent? No, we want to be independent. We want some piece of ourselves that we can master and control. We want to be like God. And in breaking this limit, what happens? The world comes unraveled. Adam and Eve come undone because they've lost their creatureliness. Why are Adam and Eve suffering? Because they're no longer creatures in the image of God, but creatures who want to be like God. Now, any theological consideration of 
dependence and vulnerability has to think about sin too because it's very hard for us to, to parse out the difference between say, um, hey, this dependence or this vulnerability is exactly how God wants it to be or is it distorted by sin? Sin obviously brings in extra threats to our vulnerability and dependence. Sin preys on the goodness that God created. But we don't have time to do that, thankfully. And any consideration of dependence and vulnerability not only has to consider sin, but it's got to consider redemption as well. The promise of a new creation, of a redemption, of a restoration of all things in which this creation is transformed. Because if limits are going to be transformed, why not just help ourselves along to that next stage? But we don't have time for that either. What we can do, I think, is just look at one really obvious basic dependence that's in the garden and that's in the next garden, that's in the creation and the new creation that involves all of us, some of us here tonight, I've seen, you're involved in this, and it's food. (laughs) That piece of fruit, the cause of the fall, food, a sign of utter dependence and weakness and vulnerability. Human beings can't even keep themselves alive. Weak. Adam and Eve could have died in that garden. (coughs) Have you thought about that? Adam and Eve could have died in that garden if they did not eat. But they never would think of not eating. And there's plenty of food to go around because God's providing for them. But without food in the garden before sin, they would die because they are creatures. And creatures depend, human creatures depend on food. It's a part of who we are and what we are. And in the future, we get a promise of a banquet. And this is my favorite description of that banquet. And it's not Letourneau approved, and you'll see why. On this mountain, is from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the, be- the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfo- enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The reason there is something rather than nothing is because God wanted a banquet feast with us. And that food in the first garden is going to be there in the second garden. And if we're wondering whether that's the case, Jesus provides us with a very strange, strange confirmation. When Jesus, after the resurrection, appears to his disciples, rather his deserters, all those who've given up on him, he tells them who he is. Or he rereads the scriptures with them and he explains how the Messiah fits in the story. They still don't get it. They're like, man, that dude can interpret scripture. That was awesome. It's not until Jesus sits down with him and eats that they go, you're Jesus. 
And Jesus, just like that, disapparates with a Harry Potter <laughs> move. <laughs> and then he appears to some other disciples. And he, when he had explained, he had showed them his wounds, we see when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus, transfigured body. His body isn't like our bodies. People don't recognize him. He disapparates, and yet he's still eating food. Human beings will eat food. They're called to this feast in the future. And so this suggests to me, if dependence and vulnerability are the basis for human flourishing in the first garden, in the second garden, in the new creation, dependence, there will only be a deepening of dependence and vulnerability. If you think human beings are dependent and vulnerable now, just wait. Just wait until God makes things really good. Because this dependence, remember, is a gift, a call into deeper and deeper communion with God as creatures. I had uh, a professor who used to always remind us of C.S. Lewis's picture of heaven at the banquet table where everyone in heaven, no one has elbows and so to eat all the food you have to feed each other the food what is that but even more dependence now you can't even eat by yourself you have to depend on your neighbor I don't know if that's true but I like it right here's a picture of what deepening dependence might be and we sort of are like that and you can imagine that that then would be the occasion for deeper fellowship. So let me suggest two things that we should keep thinking about. Because really I've only scratched the surface here tonight and I've left a lot out. I swear. Um, it's my contention that if, if Christians in particular can't talk about creaturely limits, if they can't define why limits, dependence, vulnerability, and suffering in some way is good or meaningful, then Christians will struggle to fail, will struggle and will fail to speak about any kind of limits, whether it be about gender and sexuality or whether it be about applications of technology. And it suggests to us that as we think about our lives, we have a pattern of technology, a culture of technology, I think, that encourages independence. What does it look like not to just take out individual pieces from that pattern, but to, to create a pattern of dependence? A pattern of dependence. I think of some advice I received when I was just out of college and working in campus ministry from Craig Parker who said hey it doesn't it doesn't really matter as much what you do in life as who you do it with 
you should think about moving to a place where you'll have friendship. That should be the most important thing for you in your decision in life. Not your work, but your friendship. What kind of community are you going to be a part of? What could be more important than fellowship and dependence? And so the occasion and opportunity for flourishing in a good life. Thanks.